0: Modern Ukraine was entirely and fully created by Russia, more specifically the Bolshevik communist Russia. This is a recent statement by Russia's president, Mr. Putin.
1: In the speech that Putin gave, justifying his actions, annexing uh, or sort of recognizing the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk, he refers to Ukraine as a creation of Vladimir Lenin. And that's fundamentally wrong. Ukrainian nationalism had existed. Ukrainians existed. And the idea of a Ukrainian state existed. And the first Ukrainian state was created in opposition to Lenin, in fighting against Lenin's efforts to bring Ukraine back under control. Um, And so again, Putin's portrayal of the history here, I think, is is fundamentally incorrect when he talks about Ukraine as a creation of Vladimir Lenin and a creation of the communist. Did you know that
0: in 1654 Ukrainian Cossacks signed what they believed to be a treaty of alliance with Russia against their mutual enemy Poland. But to the Russian Tsar the Ukrainians had signed on to become subjects of the Russian Empire and the bloody and brutal conflict to subjugate the Ukrainian people has continued since. Hey there, news peelers! Today is February 25, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of appeal.news podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peel into History Behind News. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the PLDOT News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey, into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Mr. Putin has unleashed what he calls a special military operation. His decision to go forward with this has set the stage for high drama, like a movie, there are explosions and giant clouds of smoke and plumes of fire. Air sirens blare in major cities and people take refuge in subway stations. Except that it's not a movie. It's devastation, real war, perpetrated on a real country, Ukraine. And the huddled masses in those subway stations are Ukrainians. According to the Wall Street Journal and pretty much everyone else, Mr. Putin's real aim is to topple Ukraine's government. And by the time you listen to this podcast, Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, a sovereign nation, may have fallen to the Russian military. If this sounds unbelievable to you, you're not alone. Many Ukrainians didn't think this would actually happen. That sentiment is captured by a New York Times article in which a Ukrainian woman fleeing her home from the Russians is quoted as saying, I didn't think they would come. I didn't believe it until the last moment. In its history, Ukraine has suffered through many wars and great battles, and much blood has been shed on Ukraine's fertile soil, at the hands of the Russian Empire and later the Soviet Union. To better understand the complex history of wars in Ukraine and Russia's involvements in those wars, I spoke with Dr. David Stone. He is a professor of Russian Studies and former chair of the Strategy and Policy Department at the U.S. Naval War College. In addition to several dozen articles on Russian military history and foreign policy, Dr. Stone has authored the following books. In Military History of Russia, another book is Hammer and Rifle, The Militarization of the Soviet Union, and another book is The Russian Army in the Great War. The Eastern Front, 1914 to 1917, is also the editor of the following book: The Soviet Union at War, 1941 to 1945. To learn more about Professor Stone, his academic work, his many books and other publications and projects, visit his academic homepage. The link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Stone and I peel the history behind this news.
2: The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast.
0: Professor Stone, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Virtually every media outlet is talking about war in Ukraine now. Let's do something different here. Let's go back to the beginning. Is there a seminal war or battle in which Russia conquered Ukraine and absorbed it into the Russian Empire?
1: Well, Adele, thanks. I mean, I, it's my pleasure to be here, and I, I'm glad to talk to you uh, today. Pleasure to have you. Um, and, uh, and you know, my training was as an historian, and so I'm, I'm always happy to talk about the history. One thing I should make clear at the beginning here, though, is that I, I work for the U.S. government, but I'm not speaking for the U.S. government. All the opinions I'm expressing are strictly my own, not that of the U.S. government or the U.S. Navy. For sure. sure. Um, but your question. So you ask, what's the seminal moment at which sort of Russia conquers Ukraine? Um, and- this is a history that goes back a thousand years. And so to find any one moment is difficult. There's always gonna be a prehistory. But I think the moment that you can really focus in on, and one that I think illustrates some of the the problems that we're facing right now, um, comes in the middle of the 1600s. There's a moment in in Ukraine where, Ukraine literally means borderland. It means at the border. Um, And so Ukraine was a bit of a borderland between um, the, the Russian Empire and Poland. And so Ukraine kind of falls in between two worlds. There's a Polish um, kind of cultural world and a Russian cultural world. Russian is Orthodox Christian. Um, Poland is is Roman Catholic. And so Ukraine kind of falls in the middle.
0: And at one point, Poland itself was an empire of some sort, the, the Lithuanian-Polish Empire, right?
1: Yes, certain Poland, uh, The Poland-Lithuanian Commonwealth was an enormous piece of territory. It's a very large state. And so in a sense, you... The region that's now Ukraine was kind of caught in between, and in the middle of the 1650s, there's a, a, a Ukraine is contested between these two regions, and the, the the population of Ukraine at that time consisted in large part of kind of this sort of free-roving population of horsemen, mercenaries, um, hunters, trappers that lived in this region, and they were constantly being pulled back and forth in terms of their allegiance. And in 1650s- those the four, Cossacks
0: or the Cossacks, are, yes, Cossacks. Yes. Okay. Um, and in
1: 1654, the Cossacks decide to align themselves with Moscow. Um, and there's a treaty, uh, the Treaty of Perioslavl. Um, Perioslavl is a city in, in present-day Ukraine. And the Treaty of Perislovel, um links this Cossack state to Moscow. And the question is, what exactly did the Cossacks agree to? And this is historically contested. From the point of view of the Tsar the in Moscow, The Cossacks just signed on to be subject to the Russian Empire. From the Cossack point of view, they signed on to something that was a lot more like an alliance. They were not sort of ceding away all their autonomy, but that became an object of contestation. This is a disagreement between the Cossacks and Moscow about who really holds power. And that jockeying for position and just how much autonomy and freedom Cossacks would have inside the Russian Empire was an ongoing issue. But 1654 is a a decent date to start in thinking about how this develops.
0: So does a battle ensue or that treaty is sort of sets the stage for subsequent conflict?
1: Yeah. So essentially what's going on here is is a Cossack rebellion against Poland. And the Cossacks invite Russian assistance against Poland um, and so Russia joins in this war. Russia joins in a war against Poland. And uh, what's now Ukraine, And the Cossacks of Ukraine, in, in effect, ally themselves with the Tsar in Moscow.
0: Is there a moment at which Ukrainians, Cossacks, as, as, as uh, you identify them at this moment, sort of realize that they're being subjugated by the Russian empire, and they start armed opposition or insurrection, yeah. if you will, against, by Ukrainians against the Russian empire.
1: Well, one good example of this, and, and a moment that I think sort of gets to the point you're making about Ukrainian resistance to Russian rule, comes roughly speaking 50, 60 years after the Treaty of Perislav, which links the, the Cossacks to Moscow.
0: So we're talking um, late 1600s, early 1700s. So this is early
1: 1700s. This is under Peter okay. the Great okay um and so peter the great again russia is in is in constant struggle against the other empires that it is facing and peter the great finds himself at war with the swedish empire um so under king charles XII sweden formed an empire of its own in northern europe and sweden and russia fight the great northern war at the beginning of the 1700s and in the course of that war charles the invades russia and in, in his invasion of russia he takes a detour south into what's now ukraine and the Cossack loyalty is then up for grabs. And the leader of the Cossacks at that point, he called Hetman, is not like headman, but Hetman of the Cossacks is named Ivan Mazepa. And Mazeppa's faced with a choice. Technically, he owes loyalty to the Tsar of Moscow, um, but from Mazepa's point of view, Peter the Great is not defending him. Um, Sweden is invaded. Mazepa makes the decision to ally himself with Charles XII, King of Sweden. And so the Cossacks under Mazepa and Charles XII's Swedish forces fight a major battle against Peter the Great and the Russians at Poltava in 1709.
0: That's actually that, the name of a city now, in Ukraine. Yeah, right?
1: so Poltava, I mean, the, the battle was named for a town that was yeah. the town of Poltava. Poltava is much bigger now. Um, but yeah, so the, the Battle of Poltava is named for the, the then town of Poltava. Um, Charles XII is defeated. The Swedes are defeated. The Cossacks go down to defeat. And Mazeppa and Charles XII have to go on the run. Mazeppa dies soon after in exile. Uh, but that's a moment at which the, the Cossacks, in a sense, have this moment to try to grab greater autonomy or perhaps even independence. But Peter the Great and the Russians crush that. I mean, the, you know, he, Peter the Great wins this battle, Poltava, in 1709, and then is in a position to impose much greater control over Ukraine and the Cossacks and bring them into even tighter orbit around the Russian
0: czar. From sort of reading and perusing Russia's history, to me, a layperson, it seems like in the past, Prior czars or even the Soviet Union may have treated Crimea differently in military conflicts. Is that a is 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 that a relatively correct assessment?
1: Yes. Yeah. So I mean, one of the things to bear in mind is is, is Russia obviously is enormous. Uh, the Russian Empire was enormous, and it contained all sorts of different territories that were were acquired by Russia at different times in different ways. And so the acquisition of Crimea is a little different than the acquisition of most of the rest of Ukraine.
0: How Um, how so? How is it different?
1: So the way that works is that um, I I mentioned Peter the Great earlier. One of Peter the Great's successors is Catherine the Great,
0: who is
1: who rules Russia at the end of the 1700s. And the reason that Catherine the Great is called the Great is because of extensive territorial conquests. Um, She fights a massive war against the Ottoman Empire Um, and the Ottoman Empire uh, sort of centered in, in Istanbul. Um, controls much of the shores of the Black Sea. And so Catherine the Great's war seizes much of the territory from the Ottoman Turks around the shores of the Black Sea. But also Catherine is able to take advantage of that moment to annex Crimea. Crimea had been a sort of semi-independent state um, populated by Tatars, people of Turkish ancestry. And so the Crimean Tatars had been dominant in Crimea.
0: So they had not been subjugated by Peter the Great in the past. That, so
1: Crimea had been this, in, in a sense, kind of a buffer state in oh, between the Ottoman Empire and Russia. As a result of these, this war with the Ottoman Empire, Catherine formally annexes Crimea. It is now part of the Russian Empire under Russian control. And so Crimea was acquired much later than other parts of Ukraine were acquired by the Russian Empire. It's brought in under Catherine at the end of the 17, 1770s. And so its history is a little different. And in addition... Um, Its population is different. Over time, more Ukrainians and Russians move into Crimea. But at this point, the population when Catherine annexes it is largely of Turkish ancestry. Um, And so that changes a bit over time. But there's still a large Turkish population, the Tatar population, in Crimea right now.
0: Interesting. Um, Professor Stone, we talked about Russia conquering Ukraine and the treaty in 1654, and then armed opposition uh, later in the 1700s against Peter the Great's rule. his his sort of uh, power struggle with Poland and the special case of Crimea. I should now ask this sort of logical follow-up questions. Have Russia and Ukraine gone to war against each other in the past?
1: So, yes. I mean, it's it's a complicated story. And so uh, I apologize. I may end up saying it a lot, that it's a complicated story. (laughs) But the...
0: History <laughs> seems to be complicated all the time.
1: It, it always is. And the ethnic yeah. history of Eastern Europe is a very complicated uh, story. So the, the time to think about an actual Ukrainian-Russian war would be in the context of World War I, and particularly the end of World War I and the breakdown of the Russian Empire. So to kind of summarize the story very briefly, and I'm sure you and many of your, your, your listeners will already be aware of this, Russia is fighting in World War One. And under the strains of war, in 1917, the Russian Empire begins to fall apart. Um, There are riots in the capital of St. Petersburg. Um, Tsar Nicholas II abdicates the throne, and Russia begins to disintegrate. Now, in that process, Ukraine declares independence. Um, There's a group of Ukrainian nationalists who declare a new Ukrainian state in kind of the ashes of the old Tsarist Empire. Now, Russia, as a result of the 1917 collapse and the subsequent revolutions, um, Russia disintegrates into civil wars, multiple civil wars with multiple parties. And so Ukraine is fought over repeatedly. Kiev, the, the capital, changes hands multiple times over the course of a very complicated series of wars. But one aspect of that civil war certainly was Ukrainian nationalists fighting for an independent Ukrainian state against, in particular, communist forces backed by Moscow and Vladimir Lenin's um, sort of new Soviet government Mm -hmm, trying mm -hmm. to bring Ukraine back under Moscow's control. Um, So one of the things that's interesting, um, uh, Vladimir Putin, and we're speaking right after Putin's speech in which he declares recognizing these two breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk. um, In the speech that Putin gave, justifying his actions, annexing uh, or sort of recognizing the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk, he refers to Ukraine as a creation of Vladimir Lenin. And that's fundamentally wrong. Ukrainian nationalism had existed. Ukrainians existed. And the idea of a Ukrainian state existed. And the first Ukrainian state was created in opposition to Lenin in fighting against Lenin's efforts to bring Ukraine back under control. Um, And so again, uh, Putin's portrayal of the history here I think is is fundamentally incorrect when he talks about Ukraine as a creation of Vladimir Lenin and a creation of the communists.
0: Do Russians buy his side of the story? So- (laughs) That's a whole different- um,
1: I mean, it's a difficult question to answer and it's a difficult question to answer on a variety of grounds. Um, One is- it's hard to know how reliable Russian polling data really is. Um, There are some good polling agents. People are asking good questions. Um, And on some subjects, I I think we get good data. But on questions that involve, do you approve of Vladimir Putin's policies? Do you think Putin is a good leader for Russia? Do you approve of what he's doing in Ukraine? I'm not entirely convinced that we can really rely on the numbers that we're getting. That's the first thing to say. Um, The other thing to say is that it's certainly true that for an older generation of Russians, it is hard for them to see Ukraine as a real independent state, because Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union for so long. And because many Ukrainians speak Russian, um, even in parts of, uh, in in much of Ukraine, there's a kind of hybrid Ukrainian-Russian language that people speak in day-to-day conversations, it's hard for Russians to imagine that Ukraine is really its own country, especially older generations. Now, Ukraine's been its own country for 30 years. And so for younger people, this is a much easier middle adjustment to make. But older generations would have trouble really buying Ukraine as an independent country. And so it's hard to say just how much Putin's narrative of Ukraine as somehow artificial um, really resonates. I'm sure it does with some, but but by no means all.
0: We're going to talk more about Mr. Putin in a second. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about Russia's wars on Ukraine's soil with nations other than Ukraine? Who are Ukrainians? Seriously, how much do we know about their language and religions, including American evangelism that has spread there since their independence from USSR? Or what do we know about Kievan Rus, this historic Russian Ukrainian state? Professor Warner explains all of this in season 2 episode 5. And who is Mr. Putin, the person? What is his personality like? Here is something that I bet you didn't know that at one point, the KGB assessed a character flaw in Mr. Putin. Can you guess what it is? That he was prone to take unwarranted risks. Hmm. Professor Stoner of Stanford University talks about Mr. Putin in Season 2, Episode 9, which is our next episode. For your convenience, we have also organized these episodes about Ukraine into a podcast series. Just click the post Soviet States podcast series link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while there, check out my conversation with Professor Tutomlu, who talks about her homeland, Kazakhstan, after Russia sent troops there. Interestingly, Mr. Putin made a statement about Kazakhstan that is disturbingly similar to what he said about Ukraine that Kazakhstan is an artificial state. Now, Let's get back to my conversation with Professor Stone. (music) Professor Stone, what are some of the wars or battles that Russia fought in Ukraine against other countries? And you mentioned one in the previous segment.
1: So... One of the things that I think, it's a good question, and I'll talk briefly about three. Um, and they they all relate essentially to the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, that the word Ukraine means borderland or at the border. Um, and because it's a borderland, that borders are places where wars are fought. Um, and so there's three that I'll mention. Um, one is the Crimean War fought, oddly enough, in the Crimea, World War One, World War II. So the Crimean War is in the middle of the 1800s, um, and essentially it's a, a struggle over what's going to happen to the Ottoman Empire. I mentioned the Ottoman Empire earlier, um, centered in Istanbul, encompassing a large part of what's now Turkey, the Balkans, the Middle East. And the Ottoman Empire is in long-term decline, and European empires want to know what's going to happen to it, and who's going to get the pieces of the Ottoman Empire as it falls apart. Um, and the Crimean War is essentially about that. About and they Britain. surely
0: don't want to don't want Russia to gobble up all of Ottoman Empire, right?
1: That, that's exactly the case. So the Britain yeah. and France want to keep Russia out of the remnants of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and so the question is, if you're Britain and France at one end of Europe and Russia at the other end, how are Britain and France going to wage war against Russia? What they do, in effect, is land in the Crimea. They send an expeditionary force to land in the Crimea and, and in a sense to inflict pain on Russia, the humiliation of foreign soldiers on Russian soil. Um, and so Crimea has a fair amount of historical resonance for Russians, specifically because of that war, the Crimean War, which is a war in which Russia is humiliatingly defeated, can't expel foreigners from its own soil. Um, and so there is this kind of memory of this. Um,
0: and this comes uh, about 40 years after they expelled Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte. Yes, right. Yeah,
1: right? So, right. 40 years after the defeat of Napoleon, Ru- Russia was assumed to be this massive superpower in Europe in the wake of defeating Napoleon. Crimea reveals it to have serious weaknesses. Um, and this sort of sense of national humiliation drives an awful lot of things, lots of internal reforms mm-hmm. inside Russia. But it means that Crimea is meaningful uh, and yeah. has a significance outside of its sort of geographical area alone. So that, that's the first war I would mention. The second war I would mention is World War I. And again, as I mentioned, the World War I is the war that destroys the Russian Empire, that leads it to collapse and revolution. And a large chunk of that war is fought on ukrainian soil because ukraine is part of russia's western borderland at that point um, and during that war as the war sort of approaches 1917 and the collapse you start to see kind of flowering of ukrainian nationalism um, after the the czarist government collapses for example the the russian armies on that front in ukraine form ukrainian units they separate out ukrainian soldiers to be Ukrainians and Ukrainian units under Ukrainian officers again, as this sort of sign that Ukrainian nationalism is really burgeoning. Um, the most significant, though, is World War II, and World War II has enormous resonances um, in throughout the Soviet Union, in Russia proper, and in Ukraine. Um, much of the Second World War for so the Soviet Union was fought on Ukrainian soil uh, because, again, Ukraine is the western borderland. Um, The war sweeps through Ukraine, first with the German invasion um, from west to east, and then the Soviets coming back from east to west. Um, it's enormously devastating. Um, the, sort of the human costs of that war are, are astonishing to, to consider. The Soviet Union probably lost 30 million people, military and soldiers, wow. dead during that war.
0: Well, we um, lost about 400,000 in World War II?
1: 400,000, yeah. So, I mean, it's wow. a different order of magnitude. Um, and so the, the, the memories of that are still to this day enormous for Russians, Ukrainians, everyone else who, uh, the peoples of the former Soviet Union. Now, there's a couple things that, that come out of that. One is that for the Russian government today, World War II is really one of the few things that all Russians can sort of unite and feel proud of. Um, because the great monuments of Soviet history are a lot harder, um, that's tough. Um, You know, the sort of the Soviet rule in Russia brought lots of things that weren't very good. And so it's hard to unite people around specifically the communist heritage of the Soviet Union. But World War II, where every family lost someone, where there's this great sense of shared sacrifice and triumph, World War II is astoundingly important to the Russian people. In Ukraine, it has some of that, but there's an additional angle to that as well. World War II brought Soviet control back and expanded Soviet control. There are parts of Ukraine that weren't under Moscow's rule before World War II, but become part of Russia after World War II. Yeah, Western Ukraine had not been under Soviet rule prior to World War II. It is brought under Soviet rule with all the things that that come with it. The other issue to, to bear in mind, and this is really significant for the way that Vladimir Putin talks about Ukraine right now, is sort of imagine Ukraine in 1941 when the Germans invade. One of the things that had happened to Ukraine prior to the German invasion was a massive famine. Um, In the 1930s, as a result of Joseph Stalin's agricultural policies, the Soviet Union was hit by a massive famine. And something on the order of 6 million Soviet citizens starved to death in the course of that famine. It's it's huge.
0: In this case, when you say Soviet citizens, you really mean Ukrainians.
1: Well, so this is the interesting thing. Many of that 6 million were in Ukraine. Now, lots of people starve to death outside of Ukraine. Um, the Ukrainian view often is that this famine was specifically targeted against Ukrainians. I don't happen to think that's true. I think the famine hits peasants. It hits people in the countryside. Um, but Ukraine is a grain-growing region and has lots of peasants. And so a famine that hits peasants in grain-growing regions is going to kill a lot of Ukrainians. No doubt but, about that.
0: May I may interrupt you for one moment. Sure. So you're saying that the Ukrainian side Their perspective is that this was intentional, almost like it's sort of an ethnic, uh, ethnically pointed program, right? A genocide of some sort. Yes. Yes. And so
1: this is is an ongoing historical debate. Um, The degree to which Soviet policies were designed to kill a lot of people or whether they were just incompetent and bad policies ended up killing a lot of people. And another question, was it specifically designed to hit Ukraine hardest? Or was that a side effect of the fact that Ukraine has a lot of agricultural land? And again, reasonable people disagree on this. My read of the evidence, this is predominantly um, a, a famine that hits people in grain growing regions, not necessarily specifically designed to hit Ukrainians. But again, there's debate on that to this day.
0: When you say there's debate on that, this is a debate that uh, scholars, uh, historians are having in Western Europe and, and, and North America. Are these things being debated in Russia of today, or is that history sort of whitewashed?
1: So um, the Russian historical profession includes, is a a very broad group of people. And so I would hesitate to to say that all Russian historians think this, or all Russian historians think that. Um, There's a great deal of study of these issues among Russian historians. Um, And some certainly would lean towards the interpretation that um, it is Bad policy that ends up killing a lot of people because it's bad policy. There are some who would argue it was deliberate. Um, and I think what you could say safely is that there's a, a tendency. More Ukrainian historians will say that it was deliberately targeting Ukrainians. Yeah. You get more Russian historians would say, no, it's not deliberately targeting Ukrainians. Again, So there, there would be some distinctions. But again, historians are uh, a, a, a broad group of people. And you, I wouldn't want to characterize all of them as saying one thing or the other.
0: Of course. Um, let,
1: me, let me sort of I'll, I'll back to the thought. That the point please that do. We, were, we were going to with this was so when Germany invades in nineteen forty-one, it's in the immediate aftermath of millions of Ukrainians starving to death under Soviet rule. And clearly the people of Ukraine had no reason to love Joseph Stalin. Stalin's rule had brought them misery and death. And so one of the things that happens when the Germans invade is that some Ukrainians Particularly in the the westernmost regions where Ukrainian nationalism is strongest, greet the Germans as better alternatives to Stalin. And that's historical fact. That is simply the case. That is true. That didn't happen. Um, Now, lots of Ukrainians, millions of them, fought in the Soviet army to liberate Ukraine and defeat fascism. But there were Ukrainians at the beginning of the war who welcomed the Germans as liberators from Stalin's rule. Now, what that means now is that. Vladimir Putin and his government routinely condemn any sort of Ukrainian nationalism or any idea that Ukraine has a destiny sort of independent from Russia as Nazism, as fascism. Wow. Uh, Ukrainian nationalism is essentially fascism. Um, and so what it's doing is taking the actions of a segment of Ukrainian nationalists in 1941 and applying that today to the idea of Ukrainian nationalism, generally speaking. So it's take it's, pulling a a very small number and applying it to a much bigger category.
0: He's using that uh, narrow thread of history for his own propaganda now. Yes. In addition to being a borderland, is there anything else about Ukraine that makes it a battleground? Is it because it's a breadbasket for uh, Eastern Europe or that it's on the Black Sea?
1: So I I think geography explains most of this, that again, Mm -hmm. it's borderland. As a borderland, that's where people—that's where fights happen. Um, in addition, as, as I mentioned, it, Ukraine is a borderland in many senses, and the nature of Eastern Europe, um, and one of the things that has led to a sort of a, a bloody history and one where borders shift, is that there—it's difficult to find clean borders where you can say we can have a line, and on one side of the line all people are this, on the other side of the line all people are that. Um, the nature of Eastern Europe is that populations are extraordinarily intermixed. Um, and so you have Catholics and Jews and Orthodox, uh, you know, Jews, Catholics, Orthodox Christians. You can have people who identify as Polish next to people who identify as Russian, who next to people who identify as Ukrainian. All these different groups can be intermingled together um, in a way that makes all sorts of questions of ethnic politics much more difficult and much more um, sensitive. Than they would be otherwise, uh, and so I think that's one of the things that contributes to this sense of instability of borders is the fact that populations have been living alongside one another and intermixed for centuries, uh, and that's not going to change any time.
0: That almost sounds. Uh, this is a different subject. Uh, I'm not opening a can of worms, but that almost sounds like the Middle East where ethnicities are so mixed together and there's such a history and they're not clearly defined, especially, you know, they don't, they don't, they they don't sort of lend themselves to easy descriptions and headline news or, you know, titles and what have you.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think it's a fair comparison. Um, if you take, for example, um, the, the regions that today sort of Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, it's very clear that for centuries there were Christians and Jews and Muslims yeah. living intermixed. Um, at times coexisting peacefully, at times in conflict, but you can't sort of make a blanket statement about a region that complex. So I think you're absolutely right that there is a parallel um, in terms of different populations that are sharing space and occasionally sharing culture, but in other ways being quite distinct.
0: We'll be back after a short break to talk about something that we Americans don't often talk about, Russia's perspective about its own security. We'll be right back.
2: We hope you are enjoying this podcast, and if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you.
0: Professor Stone, I want to read something to you from today's Wall Street Journal print edition. It's a statement by President Putin and it reads as such, Russia has every right to take retaliatory measures to ensure its own security. Now, I'm I'm not pro-Putin and I'm not discounting Mr. Putin's true intentions here. Regardless, I can't help but ask a following question. Are we Americans missing the big picture about Russia's True security fears. You you identified some of them in the previous segments. I mean, when you look at Russia's history, even as a layperson such as I, they've been just invaded over and over again.
1: Yeah, so I I do think it is it is fair to say that the the U.S. public does not generally understand quite the way that Vladimir Putin and sort of the elite around him think about Russian security. I think that that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is important that we make an effort to understand his point of view. Now, I, I hasten to add that that understanding the reasons that he thinks the way he does does not necessarily mean approving. Of course, yeah. um, so I, I hasten to add, I, I don't approve of the actions Vladimir Putin has taken. Yes, um, I think I can grasp some of the reasons why um, he takes the positions he does. So, the as Putin presents it. Um, his fundamental concern in Ukraine is threats to Russian security. Um, I think he is systematically overestimating the degree to which Russia is under threat. Uh, I think he he fundamentally misunderstands the nature of NATO and NATO intentions um, at least as Vladimir Putin expresses himself, he sees NATO as presenting an imminent threat of attack on Russia and I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding. Um, the idea that,
0: does he really believe that or does he use that for propaganda purposes?
1: So it, that's an excellent question. Um, he says it pretty consistently. Now, people mm-hmm. can say things consistently and not mean them. Yeah. Um, and the question that you're asking essentially requires us to get inside Vladimir Putin's head and read his mind. Yeah. So it, yeah. we, it's impossible. You know, you can never know for sure what's in anybody's head.
0: Exactly.
1: Um, he consistently says that he believes that NATO is a, a threat to Russia to carry out an attack. Um When I look around the countries of NATO, and I note that NATO works by consensus, um, and I imagine to myself that the sort of 30-some countries of NATO would come to a consensus and agree that starting a war with Russia, a a power with thousands of nuclear weapons, that NATO would come to a consensus that this is a good idea is, to me, ludicrous. (laughs) It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, And so if Putin is, is thinking in terms that NATO is looking to attack Russia, I think he's, he's out of touch with reality. Um, now it's conceivable that this is sort of bargaining chip. Um, I think deep down, I guess my, this is my read on Vladimir Putin's foreign policy, um, is that fundamentally what he wants is a Russia that dominates its neighbors. He sees the world as rightfully belonging to great powers that tell their smaller neighbors what to do. That I think is his vision of what ought to be. Um, Wow. And the vision that's opposed to that, um, this is the, the vision of the United States, of NATO, of the European Union, um, is that small states enjoy sovereignty too. That smaller states have the right to determine what it is that they would like to do, how they want to organize their own affairs, what sorts of international arrangements they want to make. Um, and so this is the, the kind of the conflict that's set up over Ukraine. The irony of this one of the things that's clearly agitating Vladimir Putin is the, the possibility of Ukrainian membership in NATO.
0: Is that and, even remotely possible, Professor well, so
1: this, it, I mean, it's a complicated, it, it, <laughs> I keep saying it again, this is a complicated question. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2008, NATO said that Georgia and Ukraine would eventually become members of NATO, that they will become members of NATO at some point, unspecified in the future.
0: When you say NATO said, was that a sort of doctrinal statement or was that just sort of an interview with somebody?
1: So, this is um, NATO has uh, periodic summits. This was the Uh 2008 Bucharest summit of NATO, and official statements come out of this. This was a NATO official statement that Georgia and Ukraine will become members of NATO. But again, no concrete plans, no timetables, just eventually. Um, And most informed observers agree that, that that eventually was more or less. Never, like the indistinguishable future. Um, And again, no concrete plans to do it. And it was very clear in 2008 that there were a large number of European members of NATO that did not want to see Georgia and Ukraine in NATO. And so the compromise with the US that would like to see NATO expansion and European partners that didn't was no expansion, but this promise of eventual expansion. Now, in retrospect, speaking only for myself, I think that promise was a very bad idea. Um, To make a promise, but with nothing concrete behind it, um, is the worst of both worlds. One of the things that's become clear is that for a number of members of NATO, Mm -hmm. the idea of bringing in a country that has territorial disputes is a non-starter. There's no official NATO charter statement that you can't bring in a country if it has territorial disputes. But a number of NATO members, it seems very clear, have decided they don't want to borrow trouble. They don't want to bring in a state with a territorial dispute. And since that Bucharest summit, Russia has created territorial disputes um, in Georgia and in Ukraine. Uh, and I, I think it's not hard to see a link there. Um, the part of what Putin is doing is sort of separating territories from neighboring states in order to throw a monkey wrench in the, pro- the potential process of their becoming NATO members.
0: Does Russia's troop buildup around Ukraine sort of reflect Soviet-Russian military strategies of the past, you know, propaganda, panic, instability, and and sort of the surprise element. You never know what's going to happen next with them.
1: So I don't think it's particularly Soviet. Um, And the reason I say that is because the Soviet Union was a superpower. Um, It had 300 million people. Its East European empire had another 150 million people. It had enormous military resources. And so the Soviet Union didn't need to be particularly subtle in terms of military strategy, it had mass forces. Um, Russia today is much smaller, its military is smaller. And so it, and it's up against in NATO, um, an alliance that has much more potential power. So the Russians have to use methods of kind of misdirection um, in order to have any sort of, of chance. Um, and so what I think we're, we're seeing here is what now is often called hybrid warfare Um, In the past, it was sometimes called political warfare, but it's the idea that you combine a whole series of mechanisms, um, political mechanisms, propaganda mechanisms, economic mechanisms, and potentially military mechanisms, all working together to try to achieve a particular goal. Um, And I think what we can see in Ukraine over the last year or so is a combination of measures. Um, information warfare, political pressure, diplomatic pressure, and the threat of military action. And as you and I speak, um, there's been no new shooting yet. Uh, I hope there isn't. Um, can't rule it out. Um, hopefully, as we talking, I hope we, hopefully there will not. As, as of yet, there's been no additional shooting. Um, but that threat is there. Um, and again, to my mind, uh, Vladimir Putin probably hasn't made up his mind yet whether he's going to use force in that if he gets what he wants without using force, why would you use force? Yeah. Um, but he does not have yet, I think, what he what it is he wants. But that, again, it's, we're, we're speculating a little bit on what's going on inside his head.
0: As a side note, I'm curious about this historical point. Um, uh, during Russia's civil war that occurred after um, the fall of the Romanov Empire. Uh, the U.S. sent uh, a force. Uh, I don't know how large of a force it was. It wasn't an invasion. It was to essentially uh, assist the white Russians against the Bolsheviks. Is that something that Putin brings up from time to time? Uh, you know, America is the aggressors. <laughs> They're the ones who have invaded us in the past, not us. Or is yes. it just forgotten history?
1: Yeah. So the um, it's interesting that that intervention, um, in the Russian Civil War, so the Russian Civil War runs from the Revolution of 1917 up until it dies out 1920 1921, and during that period of time, when there was a civil war inside Russia between the communist Reds and their white opponents, uh, outside powers intervened, and the Soviet Union always sort of phrased it as the 17, in, sorry, the 14 intervening powers, um, okay. which exactly those 14 were is a little vague, but certainly among them were the British, the French, the Japanese, and the Americans. And so American troops went into the the Soviet Far East at Vladivostok and into the Soviet Far North uh, around Murmansk and Archangel uh, in the very Soviet North. Um, And yes, it was never a large force, but it was there to sort of provide some assistance to the whites, to safeguard war material that had been delivered um, during the the First World War. Uh, And yes, that's not forgotten. The Soviets always made a big deal out of it. Um, oh. Vladimir Putin has not made as much of it. I think his his grievances are focused a little more recently than that. I mean, it's still there. Um, it's certainly part of Russian historical discourse. But Putin has made less of that than he has of more recent issues.
0: Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Stone as we get into the perspective.
2: Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the Podcast Highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right?
0: Professor Stone, pundits speculate that Russia waited till the end of the Beijing Olympics before uh, it takes uh, bolder actions against Ukraine because Mr. Putin didn't want to upstage Mr. Xi or still sort of his Olympic moment. Um, This raises an interesting um, historical question for me. In his history has Russia enjoyed true alliances with other nations? And I'm very cautious about the word alliance because the way I read history, the Warsaw Pact was more of sort of an agreement between vassal states to come and aid Soviet Union in case of a military conflict. It wasn't a true alliance in that sense of sort of equal partners.
1: So certainly there have been examples, um, probably the best example of a real alliance of equals uh would be in the era before World War One. Um in the years, the couple decades before World War One, um, both France and Russia saw themselves as under increasing pressure from Germany. Um and, uh-huh. and the ancient yeah. principle of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, um, both France and Russia naturally saw each other as allies against Germany. And so France and Russia, at the beginning of the 1890s, signed a series of agreements that made them allies, even though their political systems were quite different. France was, relatively speaking, politically radical. Uh, Russia was probably the most conservative power in Europe at that point. So ideologically, they had very little in common except this concrete um, opposition to German expansion. And that alliance brought Russia and France into World War I on the same side, and the British joined in as well. So there are, Russia does have a history of being in alliances. Um, but I think you're correct that it's not a fundamental principle of Russian security. Russia is not tended to look at alliances as the way that it seeks to organize its own security. Um, whereas the United States really does. The United yeah. States has alliances with with you know sort of NATO, um, with Japan, with South Korea, with Australia. There's a, the United States has alliances all over the Um, And it's the way that we think about collective security. And the Russians don't tend to do that very much. And likewise, China. Um, China has one, one treaty ally, and that's North Korea. Um, China does have close relationships with a number of other states, Pakistan, for example, but it has one ally, and that's North Korea. Now, certainly Russia and China have been cooperating very actively in recent years. Um, And there are things that bring them together. Um, For example, Russia produces lots of energy. China needs lots of energy. And so there's an economic connection. Um, The fundamental connection, though, is that, as I read it, both Moscow and Beijing share a common sense that the United States stands in the way of the way they would like to see the world work. Which involve this sort of great powers dominate their neighborhoods and, and tell their neighbors what to do, and they see the U.S. and kind of the Western world more generally as an obstacle to that, as kind of blocking that path. And so, to my mind, the the Russia-China relationship is, to a large degree, an alliance of convenience in opposition to the United States. Now. Um, Putin and Xi Jinping have clearly established a personal relationship. There is, I, it seems, real warmth between them. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally, it's about opposition to the US. And what's an interesting is that there's a fair amount of history that has been suppressed by that. Um, much of the Russian Far East today used to be Chinese territory. And it was Chinese territory that it was taken away by the Russians by the use of force or the threat of force. Um, When China was in its century of humiliation, when China was falling apart um, at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, Um, in the 1800s, Russia took and annexed large chunks of Chinese territory. Um, And the People's Republic of China in the past has tended to be fairly touchy about territory that it sees as rightfully belonging to China. That issue has been set aside. Um, and again, the question is, how long? Is that an issue that's permanently been resolved? Or is that something that might rear its head in the future? Mm, impossible to say.
0: Do you see uh, a future China-Russian alliance of some sort, military alliance?
1: You certainly couldn't rule it out. Um, there's a great deal of military cooperation in terms of arms sales and joint exercises. Um but normally, when we say an alliance, we mean something a little bigger. And that would be that um, in a defensive alliance would be if China is attacked, Russia would come to China's aid. If Russia is attacked, China would come to Russia's aid. Again, I think the chances of NATO attacking Russia are really, really tiny, essentially yeah. non existent. Um, the more um, ominous question would be an offensive alliance. Um, the issue there, though, is that russia's key priorities are not beijing's key priorities moscow has things that it cares a lot about um but it doesn't tend to be the things that beijing cares a lot about beijing cares an awful lot about taiwan yeah there's an awful lot about the states on its immediate borders russia cares about things it cares about the middle east it cares what happens in eastern europe but those are not necessarily the things that occupy the chinese and so um There is certainly a great deal of cooperation. It could certainly get deeper, but the fundamental things that the two governments are concerned about kind of head in different directions, for lack of a better term.
0: If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about war in Ukraine, after everything we've talked about, what would it be?
1: So it would be to respect the idea that Ukraine is a real country, um, that Putin is consistently trying to portray Ukraine as a puppet of the West, mm-hmm. um, as kind of Russians who just don't quite understand that they belong with Russia. Um, but it's that Ukraine is a real country. And it's been a real country for 30 years. And Ukrainians have a sense of themselves as their own people and and not as Russians. Um, and it's worth bearing that in mind.
0: Your reference to the 1654 treaty is really informative. That's something that, uh, Really, it's, it's a point in which you realize that Ukraine is truly a different country going back several hundred years ago. Professor Stone, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective.
1: Uh, Adele, it's been a real pleasure. I'm delighted to talk to you and I'll, I hope to be back again someday.
0: Look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At The Peel Dot News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. It means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of The Peel.news.